This week on Monster Kid Radio, we're going to open with the band The Surf Mist. This is the song Wave Rock. It comes from their album Swingin' Sisters. You can find them at thesurfmist.bandcamp.com or look up The Surf Mist on Facebook. Or if you happen to be in their hometown of Perth, Australia, maybe you'll see them around town. However you find them, let them know that you heard about them here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. How you doing? Welcome to the show. This week you're in for a treat because I've got Monster Kid Radio guest number one. Because he was on episode number one, Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland is joining me this week on Monster Kid Radio to talk about the 1933 film Mystery of the Wax Museum. This is an awesome movie. I had a lot of fun talking with Chris about this movie on the show. Now, heads up. I actually recorded the conversation with Chris a couple of weeks ago before he and I went to go see Phantasm, before he and I went to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. It's been a little while. So when we talk about things that we're coming up and doing next, well, it's probably already happened. And I'll tell you about that at the end of the show. Before we get to the end of the show, though, we've got a few other things we're going to talk about. We've got some feedback that came in from some other previous guests of Monster Kid Radio, Alan Trump and Rich Chamberlain, both called in to talk about their Halloween plans and what's coming up for them this month. In fact, if you'd like to share with us what you're doing for Halloween, of course we'd love to hear about it here on the show. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. So you're going to hear from Alan and Rich. You're going to hear from me and Chris. And Well, why don't we get to all of that? Right after I tell you that, if you haven't already found out, the B-Movie cast is back on the pod waves. Shortly after Vince Rotolo passed, there was some noise made about the B-Movie cast continuing, the show going on in his memory. And, you know, I I didn't know if it was going to happen or not. I know that Nick Brown from the B-Movie cast turned up on another podcast as a guest, and I know that Juan Ortiz actually showed up over on an episode of the Nashi cast. But was the B-Movie cast going to come back? And really, if it did, great. If it didn't, that's great, too. I completely understand. Vince Rotolo was the man behind the scenes that made that show happen. He was the ringmaster that brought that show to us pretty much every week. Well, Nick and Juan and Vince's wife, Mary Rotolo, got together, recorded an episode, and released it this past week. Normally I play like a little lick of surf music here to transition to the next part of the show. You know what? In honor of Vince, in honor of the B-Movie cast coming back, in honor of Juan, Nick, and especially Mary bringing the B-Movie cast back to the potosphere, we're just going to dive right into the promo from the B-Movie cast. Then we'll do the trailers and everything else, and we'll get to Chris and then Alan and Rich and all that right after this. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, 
Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel. Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune into B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. The Thing from Another World. This is the spot where it was first seen. And these are the first people who saw the thing. How did it get here? Where did it come from? What is it? Let me survive, sir. I saw it. I shot at it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like a cat mewing. Captain, it was awful. You could have seen those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions. Astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? It's in the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. Museum. You can't tell the living from the dead. Do you dare to spend a night of terror in the Wax Museum? Ladies and gentlemen, the museum is now open. You will meet some of the most fiendish monsters in all history. Cannibals, poisoners, stranglers, stabbers, and rippers. Terror in the Wax Museum. Wax thou art, and to wax thou shalt return. You can't tell the living from the dead. Where one is the killer, the rest the victims. Tell the living from the dead. Are they flesh and blood or are they wax? Are they alive or are they dead? Jack the Ripper, Ivan the Terrible, Attila the Hun, Lizzie Borden, Lucretia Borgia, Bluebeard. 
do you dare to spend a night of terror? Terror in the Wax Museum. cannot get enough of this guy that I've got on Monster Kid Radio this week. <laughs> Not only are we recording this morning, later today I'm going to meet him at the Hollywood Theater for a screening of Phantasm. And by the time this episode drops, like in a few days, I'm going to be hanging out with him at the Hollywood Theater again for the Lovecraft Film Festival. We'll probably see each other at the movie theater repeatedly in October. Chris McMillan, <laughs> welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Welcome back. Oh. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on Monster Kid Radio. Well, you helped launch the show, man. You were in episode number one. You're a mainstay, a stalwart. One of the, oh, wow. the foundations here, one of the building blocks. I am. I am. Wow, I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I am. Because, yeah, it was so much fun doing that first episode. And every time I come on here and get to talk monster movies with you, it's always fun. I always have a great time. And I have a great time listening, too. In fact, Aww. I'm... I'm going to blame you for my ever-growing pile of DVDs to watch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's your fault I got Yungari. <laughs> really? The Blu-ray? Yeah. Well, no, I guess on DVD, right? Uh, yeah, DVD. It's a uh, double feature with Conga. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Conga. Well, yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. But Yungari, I was like, wow, this is really weird. <laughs> the Itching Ray, I mean... Hey, you know what? The science in some of these kaiju films kind of breaks down the minute you start to squint. Yeah, that's all right. That's That's okay. That's okay. They make us smile. They make us happy. Yeah, and now now after listening to you and Rod, I've got to get a copy of Wild Wild Planet. Oh, that was a blast. I I remember seeing that actually on TV decades ago in Florida when I was a kid. I don't remember a whole lot of it, but I do remember the little tiny bodies in the suitcase. And it's like, oh, I remember that movie now. Oh, crap. Now I have to go buy it. What a wacky, pulpy movie. It was so much fun, though. I, I am seriously trying to figure out who owns the rights to those films right now. I know the – well, not the films, but like the stories themselves. Mm-hmm. I know they're part of like – has it Warner Brothers that has them as part of their uh, DVD set right now? Yeah, I think uh, – yeah, I know Warner Brothers, you said, was doing the uh, DVD on demand. Yeah, they have three of the is. four films. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if they have the rights to the stories, like the screenplays, because it would be a lot of fun to revisit Gamma 1, I'm just saying. Oh, uh, that saying. would be – yeah. And and I guess I guess uh, Green Slime's a Gamma 1 film in a way, too. So Kind of, sort of. It's like a spiritual sequel. And we talked about that with Jeff Polier, you and me. So Yes, I remember. And now that song's stuck in my head again. Thanks, buddy. Oh, hey, anytime. It's always playing in my head for some reason. I don't know. Just can't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. All right, so, hey, we mentioned uh, Lovecraft. Oh, yes. Okay, so the Lovecraft Film Festival, this is happening the second weekend of October, October 7th, 8th, and 9th at the Hollywood Theater. Mm-hmm. You know, I oftentimes lose track of how long I've been going to this thing, but I stumbled across some old emails or a post that I wrote years ago on a blog, I think, maybe, I don't remember, mm-hmm. where I mentioned that I've been going since 2002. Wow. So this is going to be year 14 from, well, I guess there was a year where there was like an extra long break between the two, but I've been going for 14 years. How long have you been going? Oh, God, you know, I really don't remember. I mean, I know I there was one year I wasn't able to get down there, but, oh, man, I don't remember, you know, honestly, I don't remember in October without being there. Yeah, I mean, there was that one year where they did it during the summertime. Was it summer or spring? It just seemed a little... They did a year and a half break. Right. 
and then did it in the summer or the spring. And I think that was one of the years I had, I missed cause it just didn't work out. But, uh, other than that, I really, I don't remember the last time I haven't been there. It's a part of who we are, man. I Pretty mean, much. It's, it's, we may not be first generation, but we're at least second generation lurkers in the lobby. I mean, that's our second home in October, really. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I always, even those years where I couldn't go the whole weekend, I was always there at least one day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, I just, yeah, I just don't remember a time when I wasn't at the Lovecraft. Probably started around the same time you did, I'll bet. I'm trying to remember what movies played the, the first year I went, and oh, uh, I can't I, remember. And their website's been updated so many times over the years. It's not like I can go back into the archives. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to see what it was. Because, um, I mean, I remember seeing, oh, man, so much there. I think it was a year Darkest of the Hillside Thickets was actually playing on stage at the Hollywood, but I I don't remember. It's been oh, so long. Yeah, no, I wasn't there for that one. So I do know that because I don't ever remember music at a Lovecraft. Do I? Ah, man, so many of them. Meh. But so many good memories. I mean, getting to see some of those movies. Oh, oh. man. Yeah, hands down. Some of the best films that I've seen in the theater setting have been at the Lovecraft. And last year was your first year as a, a guest, as an official panelist, wasn't it? Yes, it was. How was that? It was fun. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And I'm looking forward to uh, doing it again. Although, I don't have they released the schedule yet? You know, I'm on their website right now. And, uh, you know, as a guest, um, I've not been contacted about any panels or anything yet. So I don't know what's happening. Um, but they've been adding more and more to their workload. They being uh, Brennan and Gwine, Bren. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> Brian and Gwen have been adding a lot to their workload because the Lovecraft Film Festival has grown. There's mm-hmm. one in California. There's now one in Providence, Rhode Island, which is incredibly fitting. Yes, I uh, think so. so and, and they do the conventions and things like that, which which is fine. I mean, I'm sure the panels are going to be great. They always are. I always have a blast when I'm on a panel. Oh, yeah, same have here. You, have you seen any of the films they're showing this year? Um, yeah, there's the um, animated Lovecraft one, mm-hmm. um, which I wanted, I forget the name. Mm, dang it. Um, which looks like fun. And I guess they're doing the director's cut of From Beyond with Stuart Gordon there. Yeah, Stuart Gordon's going to be there. It's going to be great. Yeah. Oh, man. I can't wait to see. I know that one's going to be digital because, you know, they don't have, I don't think they have the, uh, the film elements got cleaned up for a uh, Blu ray release, which I've seen the uh, DVD version and the colors are gorgeous in that thing. So it ought to be awesome on the big screen. Should be a lot of fun. I want to mention one of the shorts that's going to be playing. I've mentioned this on Facebook. Directed by Cameron McCasland and Mm -hmm. written by Larry, Dr. Gain Green Underwood. Oh, okay. Which one's that? Beast in the Cave. It's making its regional premiere at the Lovecraft Film Festival. It's a short seven-minute film. It's an adaptation of one of Lovecraft's earliest stories. I've seen it. It's pretty cool. It's a really good adaptation in terms of, I mean, it's, it's it's true to the story. Is that one of the ones he wrote when he was younger? Yes. Okay, okay, yeah, I know the one you're talking about. That sounds cool. It's a really cool little short film, and Cameron is a friend, and of course Larry is one of my closest friends, so I'm a little biased, but even if I took all of that out, I still mm-hmm. really enjoyed watching it. I love watching the straight-up adaptations, the period piece adaptations. Those are the ones that really thrill me the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I will definitely have to find the short block that one's in and check it out. It should be fun. But once again, it's always that thing. There is so much to do, and you miss 
so much. You want to split, you want to clone yourself so you can go to two things at one time. Yeah, there's a lot to see. Um, you know, Beast in the Caves will be playing. You mentioned the Stuart Gordon film. Looks like some other incredible features are going to be running. I don't see any quote unquote classic films on this year's lineup, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd love to see some, but I know it's kind of hard to find Lovecraft classic films. I keep stumbling across films that are based more on Poe, some classic Poe stories that might fit, but, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's going to be some great films here. Another short film that I've seen is called Speaking in Tongues. It's by Thomas Nickel, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one's also really good. Uh, I am looking forward to that. It's just going to be a good time. It'll oh, be a yeah, fun time. definitely. Definitely. Are you going to be all three days? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Of course, by Saturday or Sunday night, it'll be like, oh, God, I got to go to work Monday. <laughs> and that's the case. That's always yeah. the thing, yeah. All right. Shall we dive into this week's topic? Oh, yes. Uh, so I put the call out to a couple of the small private clubs, groups that I'm part of on Facebook. <laughs> and I really wanted to talk about some 30s and 40s movies. And Chris responded. And he's like, well, I got a lot of 50s. Like, yeah, but, you know, I, I really want to get back to the roots. And he mentioned some titles that he had. And this one came up and I was like, you know, I don't think I've sat down and watched this from start to finish in one setting. So let's talk about mystery of the wax museum. Yeah. Wow. You've never seen the whole, well, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces. I mean, of course I've seen the big reveal scene. I mean, that's, well, you know, the thing. Yeah. And of course, if you've seen house of wax, spoiler alert folks. Yeah. Like you don't know. Um, yeah, you've already seen the big reveal, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, and I've seen the entire film, just not all at once at one time. And right. Wow. I mean, this movie is on 1933 mm-hmm. and pretty, I'm going to say a little transgressive, progressive in terms of how some of the filming is done, mm-hmm. um, what they put on screen and the characterization of the lead female. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, this is what you in your collection, so you've seen it repeatedly, mm-hmm. I'm sure, right? Yeah. Remember the first time you saw it? Well, it was when I actually bought the uh, DVD for House of Wax. It's one of those cheapo flip case things, and oh, okay. it came with Mystery of the Wax Museum on the back. And I'm like, well, I've never seen this. Uh-huh. And that was about, I don't know, 10 years ago. And so I'm watching it, and it's like, wow, this is really interesting. Huh. It's not one of those that show up on TV very often. Well, for a long you time, know? it was lost. The uh, two-strip Technicolor version was lost. True, true, yeah. Yeah, apparently um, Warner Brothers really ticked off Technicolor before this one with uh, Dr. X. Right. Um, which I guess they used a lot of the same cast crew and even recycled a couple of the um, the sets for um, Mystery of the Wax Museum. But what they did is instead of just shooting it in the two-strip Technicolor, they were also shooting it in black and white so they could – send the black and white copies out to smaller cities, towns, and the big towns, um, you know, got the two-strip Technicolor version. And the people running Technicolor were not happy because they weren't getting all the revenue for prints. Okay. Um, It's a really complicated history on, on that. But, yeah, I think they also shot Mystery of the Wax Museum in black and white. Um, and I think that's been available until someone's died and they found the, the Technicolor negative in his collection. It was one of the Warners, wasn't it? Uh, was it Jack I think Warner? So. I one think one so. of the Warners, they found the Technicolor in the collection. It's like, wow, here's this kind of sort of lost film. And I'm so glad it's out there because to see mm-hmm. a movie. So first of all, in this color process, it's a little different. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same vibrant colors of like some of the movies from the fifties and so on. 
but it's still just very interesting to see this color film from the 30s. I mean, this is not like one scene from Fan of the Opera that they went in and tinted or whatever, shot in color. Mm-hmm. The whole film's in this technicolor process, and it's just fascinating to watch. I could get lost just watching the movie with the sound off because it's so cool to look at. The color isn't as brilliant no, it's as different. you get nowadays. Yeah, it's but different. It's, but it still works real well, and you are right. I'm, I'm just looking... Um, yeah, it was Jack Warner's death. Uh, they found it in his personal collection. And then apparently um, it was screened at Grumman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Oh, wow. With Fay Ray in attendance. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, which is cool. I'm glad you mentioned Fay Ray because I mean, she's kind of the big monster movie horror draw for this film, I feel like. I mean, they really promote Fay Ray mm-hmm. as the female lead in this, but she's not. I mean, I, I feel like she isn't in the film all that much. Well, she doesn't show up for a while. Yeah. You know, there's a scene with uh, the reporter, Florence, their roommates, apparently. And so she shows up, like, almost in the second act. Right. I, I was a little surprised by that. I mean, you watch the film, and I'd have to go back and rewatch the opening credits to see who gets billed first. But the movie posters, Lionel Atwell gets top billing. Yes. Then Fay Ray. Mm-hmm. Then Glenda Farrell. And for my money... Glenda Farrell carries this movie. She's the heart of this film. She is. She's the hero. Yeah, and I love it. She's great. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, she's just, she's your standard smart, snarky, I guess would be the word, even though it wasn't a word back then, you know, reporter that that carries the movie, that you're following her for the most part. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who figures it all out. You say the standard smart reporter, except there's one thing that's not standard about her. She's a woman. Well, yeah. And that's... For the 30s, yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm in love with this character. I love her. She's fantastic. Apparently so does everybody else in the film, but I love her. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the thing is, she did another movie called um, High Nelly, I think it was, um, where she played a reporter again. Okay. And Warner Brothers was developing a series of movies based on a... Um, series of short stories or novels, I forget which one, based on, you know, a reporter and a police officer solving mysteries. Well, they decided since the reporter was, you know, I guess, an alcoholic in the stories, ah. um, and they didn't want to do that. They couldn't do that at that point because by the time they started uh, these this movie series, it was the Haynes Code, in effect. And so they couldn't have, you know, a hero with a serious flaw like that. So they changed the character to a woman and instantly um, cast Glenda Farrell as Torchy Blaine. Okay. Female reporter. And in two years between, I think it was 37 and 39, they made nine Torchy Blaine movies. And she's the lead. Uh, She was the lead for the first four. Okay. And then for some reason they recast her. Mm. And uh, the person who played her boyfriend slash the police detective. And I think uh, Warner Brothers had a little bit of a George Lazenby moment because <laughs> because no one liked the Frequent new Frequent co-host and guest of Monster Kid Radio, Scott Morris, will love that. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, they recast the two leads. Um, no one liked it because these movies were really successful. They, and they were cranking them out, obviously. Nine of them in two years. Wow. So they brought her back for the next 
three, and then her contract with Warner Brothers expired, and she decided to go back um, and do stage work. And they recast Torchy once again, and that was the end of it because no one wanted to see it without Farrell in the role. Huh. Well, interesting bit of Superman trivia, too. Uh, this is for Joe Stuber. Oh, yeah. There yeah. you go. Another um, another guest. <laughs> let me see. I forget who the co-Jerry uh, Siegel, yeah. He credits Glenda Farrell's performance as Torchy as an inspiration for Lois Lane. Well, there you go. I need to see these Torchy Blaine films. I've never seen them. I don't think I've seen anything with Glenda Farrell. Except for this one. I haven't either. Yeah. I didn't even know these things existed until I'm like, you know, I really like her. What else has she done? Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently she had a really good career. She did. I think she was in Little Caesar. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. She actually does have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She oh, was the honorary mayor of North Hollywood, I think it was, for a year. It was an honorary title, but she took it kind of seriously, according to uh, what's out there on the web, and was actually attending a whole lot of functions and stuff as the honorary mayor. I mean, she <laughs> and and then she went on, did television. I mean, she had a pretty good career. Well, good for her. I loved her in this. Now I want I to see too. these Torchy Blaine films. I bet, I bet they're just as spunky and fun. Although I wonder, you know, the writing has something to do with that too. And and we'll get to the story. Yeah, we'll yeah. get to the story because there's there's some well maybe not a plot by plot, but there's some behind the scenes story stuff that I find fascinating. Oh, cool. Yeah. But yeah, Glenda Farrell, she's just fantastic in this, and she doesn't show up either at the very beginning. I mean, there's the prologue with the the museum bit, and I had forgotten I had seen this. Mm-hmm. But I had forgotten how beat for beat House of Wax follows Mystery of the, of the Wax Museum. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. It's Joan of Arc, Money Problems, Marie Antoinette, all mm-hmm. of that. You know, arson, uh, all of this stuff. It's just beat for beat. There, I would even be willing to bet that if I played these scenes back to back, you could see some of the same actions in terms of the fight scene that happens the the pushing around and bars falling down or not bars but uh pieces yeah beams that's yeah. the word beams falling down in the fire it's mm-hmm. pretty uh beat for beat i mean i don't mind no 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 i don't either um it, well it's like the morgue scene you know yes. i mean there's there's some cringeworthy dialogue between those two attendants but i mean they've got the corpse sitting up going right you know and then they push the you know the body back down and then the monster rises up the same way it's it's just like house of wax yep yep although i want to talk about the morgue scene since you brought it up okay i love the morgue set i adore door that set that they're oh, in. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, man. I know in House of Wax, it's got the benefit of being this vibrant color in 3D. Mm-hmm. This morgue set, the production design here, mm. the way they position the bodies on the tables and that circular kind of ring and just this, the vaulted ceiling and the windows and the... Oh, man. It's gorgeous. Morgue, almost everything about this film is gorgeous. The production yeah. design on this, they didn't spare much in terms of putting the character of the locations on screen. I'm watching this and I'm going, you know, this is, you know, I mean, I know it's two strip technicolor and it looks fine, but I really started thinking, you know, this might even look better in black and white. You know, it might. It's like the way they've got some of the shadows and some of the sequences and all of a sudden the character starts coming in. You see the shadow first. I don't, I don't think that was in the morgue that was somewhere else. Wow, they could have really done a very good black and white version of this. You know, one of my favorite shots in the movie is in the morgue, and it does involve a shadow. Mm -hmm. And it's when our villain, 
is snooping around, looking at the bodies. Mm-hmm. He goes to each table and he lifts the blanket up to look at their face. Now we oh, don't see yes. their face because you know we don't need to see that. Right. But when he does find the one body he's looking for, mm-hmm. when he pulls up the sheet, there's a shadow of the profile of the bodies or the corpse, basically the corpse's face mm-hmm. that you can see through the sheet. Yes, that I was fantastic. That. that was great. That was mm, that was good. Yes, one of my favorite shots. It was a nice way of letting you know he found what he was looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was that was really really. Well done. Our lead guy, our villain, uh, the monster, I guess you could call him. Mm-hmm. Lionel Atwill, and a lot younger than we're used to seeing him in movies that we talk about here on MKR. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you're looking at House of Wax or uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum, you instantly go to House of Wax, Vincent Price in the sure. same role. Sure. I found it interesting that his character is kind of abrasive. Yes. You know, I mean, the same scene where Price is explaining, you know, in very gentlemanly terms, you know, why this isn't working right. You have to do this. And look at my assistant. He's making everything look like him. Atwell just comes off as, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if Vincent Price was really ever capable of doing a role in which he wasn't charismatic. Well, I mean, yes. it's just, you know, the man bled charisma, you know, oozed mm-hmm. it from him. And that's fine. I mean, that, that was his thing and he did it so well and we love him for it. The character of the artist in this film, you're right. I would not want to work for him. I wouldn't want to be taught by him. No. Uh, it's almost. <laughs> Too black and white, stereotypical. That of course he's a villain because he's a jerk, right? You know, and then of, yeah, and then of course there's a couple of scenes where he's whispering to one of the the artists that he's hired, um, and you're like, oh yeah, man, he's a jerk, and we know he's up to something bad. Yeah, but you know he's still fun to watch. It's Lionel Atwell, although I still have that whole struggle. He's so young; it'd be like if I imagine meeting my grandfather when he was a young man. Like I, I mm-hmm. just, it's like I know who you are, but I. Don't. There's something off because I I don't know you this young, you know. Oh, I know it. He's younger than a lot of the movies he, I, I remember seeing him in. Right. Kind of, kind of off-putting. You almost forget that that's him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And of course, we mentioned Fay Ray, and I mean, really, the three draws for this film are those three: you know, Lionel Atwell, Fay Ray, and Glendale Farrell. For me, the other men, I mean, they're okay. Every once in a while, they get a zinger in. I love one of the first things that is said to Glenda Farrell when she comes into the newspaper editor's office and says she's got a story. And the response is, oh, you've been doing experiments with scotch and soda again, huh? <laughs> I love that line. And even though it's not her line, it totally sets up her character. Oh, yeah. And I, I could watch this movie strictly from her point of view and be just as happy. I feel like the whole bit with the fire at the beginning, that's all prologue. As fun as it is to watch, don't need it to enjoy this movie. They mm-hmm. could have shortened this movie up, and I would have been just fine by cutting all that and just letting us see the story through her story. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. That's all I need. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, she's she really does carry the film. Um, she, the dialogue that she's given and her delivery just you clue into who this character is. Mm-hmm. It's you know? kind of rapid fire, bam, bam, bam. It's one of the things that I love about the Thin Man movies. Mm-hmm. That kind of rapid fire story uh, storytelling, the dialogue, and it's so smart and wisecrackery, but not condescending, you know, it's just kind of like, ah, you know, it's just, I love it. That was the worst description ever of a line of dialogue (laughs) delivery, but I I think the listeners understand what I'm saying. At least I hope so. 
Yeah. And what was really funny is when she's in that basement and thinks she's found the body, but it ends up being a bunch of booze. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the rich guy that, um, you know, is accused of killing this woman, but she doesn't believe it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, well, I, I had my bootlegger deliver mine. You know, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's still prohibition, but everybody's drinking. And then Florence starts pulling bottles out of it. And the cops are like, Hey, what are you doing? And she's like, ah, you're going to get your cut. This is mine. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. The, the police's res- uh, relationship with the public is so different in this. Film. <laughs> they just, and I know they did this a little bit in the house of wax. They just walk on in. They just barge into the museum. They just break through the windows to see what's going on. There's no warrants. There's no going to the judge's office and getting the okay. There's no calling for backup. It's just, we're it's just, just some, we're here. We're going. Yeah. Um, and look at what happens with professor Darcy. Yeah. Yeah. He's just grabbed and interrogated overnight. Yep. No lawyer. Nah, we don't need that. Oh, he'll break eventually. He'll break. Yeah. <laughs> he, he needs his fix. He'll break. His fix. Okay. Yeah. He is a drug addict. Right. Which is not something you saw in House of Wax. And I think this film benefits from being pre. Is it, it was the Hayes Code, right? That had yeah. come in after that. So, yeah, this is pre all of that. This is all pre code. Mm-hmm. So you get some things that are happening in this movie that don't happen in House of Wax, like the drug use. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in House of Wax, he's an alcoholic. Uh huh. Yeah, it works better with him as a drug addict, I think. Cause, cause, I think so, too. You know, it's, yeah, it just just works better. Completely agreed. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, sure, you know, I got to have my drink, whatever, but I think it works better as a drug addict. And, it, and I mean, it works better as a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, man, let's be honest, those cops, like you said, wow, they just go where they want. They just do whatever. But, yeah. you know, that works to uh, Farrell's, well, Linda Farrell's character's uh, benefit because she also just kind of wanders in wherever. Yeah. Uh, she'll come into the police station and clearly she's got a relationship with, you know, the police. <laughs> oh, yeah. How's your sex life? And grabs that. I guess it's a, they call it spices. They call them spicy magazines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which are not really hardcore. I mean, not really yeah, overly salacious by today's standards, but back then. Yeah, I, that know. wouldn't have gone through after the Hayes Code either. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've read quite a few spices from that era because Robert E. Howard wrote a bunch of them. So, oh, that's right. So, you know, that's, that's, that's for Howard's, you know, not for the, I don't know anyway. Um <laughs> I read it for the articles. Um, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, she walks in. How's your sex life? Grabs that. That would have never flown with the Hayes Code yeah, at but all. Then when, but once again, it's it, it establishes her character real well. Uh-huh. And it establishes her relationship with the police real well because they're giving her tips. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's an autopsy happening on that girl who they thought commit suicide. Better go. And you want to get the story? You better go. Yeah. Yeah. What happens? Bonnie's missing. So that starts up the whole mystery, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is one thing that you kind of got to watch for when you start watching Mystery at the Wax Museum. It is a mystery. It's more of a mystery than a horror film. You know, it is. I feel like they were trying to play both sides. They, they didn't want to flat out go ghoulish and monstrous. I mean, Dracula and Frankenstein and Universal, they had that covered. Right. But they still wanted to have that shock moment, that Phantom of the Opera mask reveal moment. Mm-hmm. And, and they still wanted to have that gruesome makeup. I mean, at one point, uh, some reviewer referred to uh, uh, 
Lionel Atwell's look in this film as being, quote-unquote, the last words in gruesomeness. Yeah, and, and for the time, I'm sure they were. Well, and it was color. People saw it in color. That's Frank true. Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, Phantom, that was all black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, you see this, it's a color burn victim, which I don't know how much of a burn victim he really looks, but... Yeah, but there's, it's, yeah, it's gruesome. It is. It is. There's um a, a rather un PC lo- comment made about how he looks at one point in the film. That's where I crouched. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh boy. He looked like an African in war paint, and I'm not going to say what the response was, but yeah, <sighs> yeah. It was well, like, oh, okay, this is the 30s. Ugh. Yeah, you yeah. just yeah, it's 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 and and then like I said, there is that comment between the two morgue attendants. The the corpse comes up and he's like, oh, always like a woman. Uh, Got to have the last word. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. Oh, I was ouch. thinking, OK, for a film in which we've got a very strong, independent female lead. Yeah. That line sneaks in somehow. I don't. It's too bad. It's almost like the cops are smart. They recognize how smart this gal is, and she's treated like an equal. And these guys are just morgue attendants. They're, uh, I don't know, they're right. not as educated, and so therefore they're just saying these things. I don't know how that, you know, that's the only way. Now, that's my rationalizing it. Maybe. You know, yeah. That's, that's me trying to go, well, that's why this happened, but I just, I, it's stretching it. Right. I think it's just in there because it's just the way it is back then or the way it was back then. And I guess kind of sort of now too, in some cases, but we, we still haven't gotten as far as I'd like us to have gotten. No, I, and I agree. Um, but you know, I mean, aside from some of those lines, I mean, the, the, everything else works just great. I think so, too. And I don't know. Some of the reviewers back in the day thought, mm-hmm. meh. Yeah. They got kind of lukewarm reviews based on what I'm seeing. Now, mm-hmm. I think today people will dig it, especially Monster Kids. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I, w- I would love to see this as a double feature. Well, I don't know. Would you watch this as a double feature with House of Wax? <sighs> It'd be kind of mm. hard, right? It would be because you're basically watching the same movie. And you'd be comparing it the whole time. And right. I feel like this one stands alone just fine. Right. And, and you know, the problem also is you're, you know, I mean, if you watch them back to back, you're really going to see how poorly women are treated in House of Wax because they're only there. Both the main heroine and her, um, her, her roommate are just there to scream. Yeah, Morticia Adams doesn't have much to do in that film. No, not really. Um, but they're there to <laughs> scream and be threatened by the monster. You know, and, and this one, you've, why weren't they writing that role back in the 50s? Why didn't they have the female reporter? It makes me wonder, is this a, a Hayes Code thing again? You know, are we seeing strong women as a threat to the family unit? I, I don't know. I, I would have to really examine what the Hayes Code did and does. I, I'm going to be honest. I, I've never read the Hayes Code. I've never read the guidelines. I've read some of them, and okay. the the main thing is, you know, you can't have flawed heroes too much. Good always has to win. Okay, that's that was one of the big True. things. Yeah, and then there were individual things, the things they couldn't explore. You know, um, they had to treat the forces of authority, uh, including the church, in a positive light all the time. So the uh, the spicy magazine reading wouldn't have gone into the. <laughs> oh. No, 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 no. Yeah. Stop reading. Yeah, no. It's it's one of those things where they're so they the Hays Code seems so vague and yet they're they're just hammering down on anything that 
would be challenging. It sounds very much like the comic book code, the comics code. Yeah, pretty much. It sounds a little bit like that. Which is why, you know, I mean, they got away with the monsters because, you know, they're monsters. But I don't think the Hayes Code had anything to do with how they wrote female characters because all of the Torchy Blaine films were shot during the Hayes Code era. Oh, okay. Huh. So, so it's not like they were writing women off. I mean, those films were done during the Hayes Code. Um, in fact, um, that's why they had to change. That's how one of the one of the characters from the stories got changed to a woman because he was an alcoholic in the stories, and they couldn't get that by the Haynes Code. Huh. They had to make it a little more. Once again, you know, the hero can't be flawed. Okay. Okay. Too much, I guess. I'm hoping I'm getting this right because I've re- I read the Haynes Code a while while ago. But anyway, yeah, that's so. It's not. It's not writing female roles and if you you know house of wax came out in the 50s and we had a lot of strong female characters in the 50s yeah it was getting better so i wonder yeah we had nikki and thing from another world we had uh, julie adams sure you know in creatures oh believe me i know <laughs> oh yeah don't we both <laughs> you know in alligator um, people you know we had yeah so yeah yeah so we did so there were strong women so i'm i just I'm assuming that the reason they didn't do, you know, have a female reporter in House of Wax was because they were going for the horror. Okay. And Mystery of the Wax Museum was a bit more of a mystery with some horrific elements. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But I'm going to assume that's probably why. Well, it's it's unfortunate. But, I mean, we get this wonderful performance in this film from her, mm-hmm. this wonderful character. I, I'm just I'm drawn to her. I mean, she's on the screen, and you know, when it first started, I'm like, oh, well, that's not Fay Ray. Bring me Fay Ray, <laughs> Fay Ray. I want Fay Ray. But then after a few minutes of just hanging out with her, you're like, well, I don't need Fay Ray. I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> Fay Ray's good. In it. Well, no, I mean, she's good too. But but she does. She's certainly. I don't know how she. Well, I imagine she got second billing because I mean, 32 and 33 were a banner year for her. Look at what got released. You know, the most dangerous game, right? Doctor X, and of course. The biggie, Kong. Yeah, we got Kong, which we've talked about on the show quite a bit. Yeah, so, I mean, this was a big year for her, and I'm sure her name was out there, and that's how she got second billing. Mm-hmm. But it's a shame, because, as we've been saying, uh, Glenda Farrell really is the star of the movie. She is. And she's terrific. I could hang out with her, and, I mean, just the lines, the, the dialogue, mm-hmm. it's so quick. By the time the movie's over, too, you know, I mentioned that so many people are in love with her. She's got two marriage proposals, mm-hmm. and you know, she she's got her options, and she's weighing them back and forth. And you know, she's a strong woman making choices on her own for her own reasons, right? And I just I'm drawn to that. I mean, this is fantastic for her. I I, I do wish she had uh, gone with option three. <laughs> the hell with both of you. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Do you have a favorite line of hers in the movie? Um, God, there's so many. I, but, well, my, the one that got me was when she's pulling out the bottles and the cops are like, hey, yeah. what are you doing? Uh, you get your cut later. This is mine. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. My favorite is when she tells the person to go to a nice warm place, and I don't mean California. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's right. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, it's hard to quote her sometimes because she's just rapid fire. Boom. I, I found a website online and I, I wasn't able to get it before recording this. Uh-huh. Um, apparently, there's a shooting script online somewhere. 
that oh, you can really? order. Uh, I'm going to order that, I think, if, it, if it's not too expensive, because I would love to just read the dialogue. Oh, God, yeah, really? Send me a link. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I will. Wow, that would be cool, because, I mean, so much of the banter that she has just goes so quick. Like you said, right. it's like Thin Men. It's like uh, some of the Howard Hawks directed stuff, where right. the characters are almost talking over each other. Right, exactly, exactly. It's so much fun to watch, and, and it moves the story along. You forget that this is, this is you know, okay, we have to build up to this, so let's just have some dialogue here. And it's like, I don't care. Yep. Dialogue away. It's great. Yep. So the screenplay is written by a couple of guys, Carl Erickson and Don Mullally, whose work I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Did a little bit of digging, though, and apparently the story kind of sort of might have been based on a play. Yeah, that's what I found. According to Wikipedia, you know, and everything on well, Wikipedia you know, is true. You know, it's true. <laughs> um, it's based on an unpublished short story called The Waxworks by Charles Belden. Right. He also had written a play called The Wax Museum. Mm-hmm which had been optioned by some producer. And when Warner brothers bought the rights, I think to the short story, they didn't know that there was a uh, play that was also going on. There was talk of a potential lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently it all got dropped. Yeah. The producer dropped his option on the play when he was threatened with a lawsuit from the co-author of a Broadway play with a similar plot. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what the heck the plot, the play was. It doesn't say, but it's like, okay, so there's two plays in a movie based on a villain dipping people in wax. Oops, I spoiled the movie. <laughs> I think we're fine. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I don't know where that was, but yeah, it just, it sounds like one of those things where the lawyers just hammered it all out. And that's what I was going to mention when I mentioned the story issue earlier is that, is it based on the story? Is it based on the screenplay? Or I'm sorry, the stage play? Maybe a little bit of both. I'd like to go back and, and do a little bit of research. And I, I feel like I know a lot about House of Wax. I mean, that's the more popular one. Yeah. Um, I would like to learn more about this film. And then, of course, I'd like to learn more about the 2005 House of Wax. I'm kidding. Oh. So don't oh. turn off your, your iPods. I, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm sc- I had to pick my jaw up off the floor. Uh. <laughs> I have the score for that film. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember the score particularly. I just, I've never seen it. Oh, I have. I've never seen the the 2005 Paris Hilton vehicle. It was on cable when I had cable. Well, I think the scene in which Paris Hilton gets killed is on YouTube repeatedly. You know, a couple of times, you can loop it. Yeah. And one of the tracks on the score, I kid you not, is titled something like "The Death of Paris" or "Paris Hilton Gets Killed" or something like that. So really, he, they knew what they were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I can say unequivocally, don't bother with the reading. I have no intention of watching it. I, I, I don't care. <laughs> it, it, it makes, uh, oh, okay, well, it makes no sense, because they took the title literal. There is a house made of wax. Yeah, I've heard that. In yep. the South. Well, that makes sense. Sure, why not? Yeah. No, it doesn't, because I've been I, in the I, South. I'm, I'm it's too freaking hot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we probably spent way too much time talking about that film. We've just given it a little bit more power by talking about it. Oh, God. are you, You're going to edit this, right? No, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Back to this film. Yes. You know, we talked a little bit about where things are with Dracula and Frankenstein. I find this to be a really interesting entry in genre cinema. I know it's more of a mystery than a horror. But mm-hmm. considering where things are in Universal really starting to get off the ground here with, you know, the, the gothic horror, the classic horror. And I was doing a little bit of digging, and I found 
this bit from an old Variety magazine. This is from 1932. Mm-hmm. Film production in future, the trend indicates, is away from cycles. So even in 32, they've recognized the horror cycle. Yeah. So majors are trying to lend stories different slants or inject atmosphere so that they will not appear strictly of the cycle on which mainly founded. Paramount did this with 70,000 Witnesses, a football story with a strong murder mystery angle. Warner Brothers are varying the horror film thing with Wax Museum. Companies are of the opinion that if film cycles are to be followed, stories must possess a companion angle or combine two or more cycle elements. In the past, it's been only the first or second picture of the newly developed cycles that did the business. Those that followed meant little. And I thought that was interesting that they're even Hmm. now or even then recognizing the horror cycle and and what really kind of happens at the end of these cycles and kind of kind of peter out and things just you know, kind of drop into the theater and that's that. But they're also talking about combining cycles, and I could see the mystery and the horror being combined so well. They did it so well in this one. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a shame they didn't do more. I agree. They're talking about cycles, and then you've got Farrell going off and doing, what, not eight, seven movies in two years based on the same character, and they're very popular. Right. I don't know if that would count as cycle, but it, it once again, it just shows that if you've got the right actor playing the right role, people will keep going because they want to see that actor. Yeah. Here, Oh, wow. Here's here's where we need to find alternate universes and go see if this actually happened. <laughs> because you know what would have been really cool? Hmm. If after the success of uh, Mystery at the Wax Museum, they took Florence and turned her into a Night Stalker-type character. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be awesome. You know, all of a sudden, she's playing the female version of Carl Kolschak. Wow. Someone should get on that. See, that's why, (laughs) you know, I wonder who's got the rights to this. I mentioned earlier, you know, wanting to know who's got the rights to Gamma 1. I wonder where things stand with this one. I mean, the movie itself, we get into the 30s and 40s and the whole public domain, what isn't what is, it it gets odd. But I do wonder about this. It's 1933. Mm -hmm. Is it public domain? Is it not? Who actually owns the screenplay? Is there a short story that is based on this in the public domain? I'd love to write that character or read that character. Oh, okay. I'd love to write it too, but. Yeah, I would love to write it, too. Yeah, sure. I mean, wow, a whole series of Florence Dempsey versus Preachers of the Night. Oh, man. Wow. That could be awesome. Doesn't have to yeah. be Florence Dempsey. It sounds like you and I have some fiction projects to talk about after we get done recording here. Yeah, I think You know, I think that you happens right. this time of year, and I blame the Lovecraft Film Festival for this. <laughs> this time of year, you and I, and, you know, I noticed it with you the other night when we were – coming home from a staging of Last Fan Standing with Bruce Campbell. Mm-hmm. There's something about the fall. I, I don't know if it's because Halloween's coming, Lovecraft's coming. It just kind of engages different parts of our brain. We start thinking, man, I want to create this, and I want to create that, and I want to write this, and I want to produce that. And, uh, all right, it sounds like we need to write us a 1930s reporter female character fighting the forces of supernatural evil. I think so. Sounds like something we need to do, man. Oh, yeah, because, well, my goal, because I think you're right, every time it comes this time of year, my monster brain goes into overdrive. Yeah. Um, And I start thinking of all these great things, and then by the time Halloween's over, I'm so exhausted, it's like, I'll get to it later. (laughs) And later ends up being next October. Yeah, we got to figure out how to make that that transition from, boy, this was awesome, let's talk about doing this and doing that, and write a couple things up, and then actually doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
I know, I know. Well, um, I'm, yeah. November is National Alva Writing Month. I'm just saying. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> that's probably a conversation to have off mic. Um, <laughs> Mystery of the Wax Museum. I, I, the director. We haven't talked about the director. Michael Curtis. Michael Curtis is an Academy Award winner. He's really? Star- I, I yeah. didn't look into him. Oh, yeah. He directed Casablanca. He directed White Christmas. He directed The Adventures of Robin Hood. He is like a big time director. He's the man. Nominated for Best Directing with Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle Dandy. I I saw that. I'm like, he did everything. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. No wonder this movie looks so good. Yeah. And I love that he was nominated kind of sort of for Best Director for Captain Blood, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't actually on the ballot as a nominee. It was a write-in ballot. Oh, wow. And he still <laughs> got the nom. Nice. And Captain Blood's fantastic, by the way. I mean, mm, I don't this, think this I've seen mi- that one. Oh, oh, it's good. It's probably – okay, okay sacrilege because I know he's known for Robin Hood. But Captain Blood is my favorite Errol Flynn film. Ooh, see – I was talking about, you know, talking with you and listening to this show and buying. Now, now I have to go get Cat and Blood. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it turns up on TCM. That's how I saw it, it was on TCM. Oh, oh okay. Maybe, yeah. I think. Well, I hope. Oh, well, what the heck? It's got to be cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, if it's that good, I'd rather own it. Yeah, and no, I really, really like that one. But no, I mean, the direction in this is really solid. And again, you kind of forget that you're watching a movie from 1933. Yeah, boy. I mean, I I didn't even look at the director, and it's like, and, and now I am, and it's like, holy cow, this guy's done a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. he was a master. I mean, he really was. And I don't know where this was in his career. Mm-hmm. I know he was he came over from uh, was it Hungary? Yes. So I don't know if he did work there. I don't know much about his career, to be honest. I know what movies he's done, and that's about it. He he also directed Doctor X. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he, it's pretty early in his career. It's like uh, well, I don't know within his first ten movies. Okay. Angels with dirty faces. Holy cow! Yeah. This guy had a career. Mm-hmm. He did The Walking Dead with Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, directed <laughs> even directed Elvis Presley and King Creel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because this guy's done everything from, it looks like, war movies to musicals. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for bringing that up. I didn't even think to look. The, the films that he's done are incredible. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you kind of forget you're watching a 1933 film in this because of the direction and the camera movement specifically. Oh, yeah. I love Dracula. I really, really love Dracula. But Mm -hmm. let's be honest, it's a very stagey film. The Mm -hmm. camera, a lot of times, is just kind of pointed at the set and and told to go. There's not a lot of camera movement. And part of it was because he couldn't. You know, once sound became the thing, as much as the cameras were being fluid during the silent era, they had to stop again because he had Mm -hmm. to accommodate sound recording. And you couldn't move things around. And actors couldn't move as much because they had to stand near the microphone. Otherwise, they couldn't be heard. So, you know, at the time, the technology kind of required some staginess, but this film moves around a lot. The camera work yes. in this 
is fantastic. And the sound design, and I don't know if this was really a job back then, mm-hmm. but the sound design on this is pretty good, too. The way they cut some of the sound effects, when he drops the body off the table, out of the morgue, that whoop sound. Yeah, I know. That's great. I've heard lots of things go whoop as they fall off a table. Never as creepily as this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the man directing this thing, the guy in charge, wow. knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah. Impressive. Impressive filmography. And and the fact that this is really early in his career and he's doing such a good job. And from what I understand, he never really had a complete mastery of the English language. So to be able to communicate what he needed. Yeah, and to direct the dialogue that was done in this film. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Wow. People need to see this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, hands down, what else can be said about the film other than you've got to see it? It's got two great monster kid actors mm-hmm. to draw you in. But then it's got this other actor who's just going to bowl you over. She is so good. No, oh, she's one of my favorites of all the actors and actresses and things that I've discovered a love for through mm-hmm. Monster Kid Radio. She's one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, she's just, yeah, I <laughs> can't she's sing great. her praise enough. Yeah. I mean, Glenda is just terrific in this. Glenda Farrell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She I, will keep you interested. I don't know what it is about wax museums being creepy. Um, oh, yeah. You know, unless it's that whole Uncanny Valley thing, I don't know. But, you know, of, of the creepy wax museum type stories, and I've seen a handful. Yeah. This is one of the best. Well, interesting point I'll bring up. The um, co- the lighting required for this two-strip Technicolor technique uh-huh. was so intense, they couldn't use wax figures. They had to use real people posing still. You know, and when I was watching this movie this time, I was really watching them to see if I could tell if they were moving. I because didn't see. I didn't. Um, what's one of the Abbott and Costello movies where they end up in a wax museum? Is it Jekyll and Hyde? But there's one where there's a wax museum set, and they ended up just putting people in there and having them stand still, and you can tell. Mm-hmm. But I was watching these, and I don't know if they just did a – well, no, it didn't look like a still frame either, a screen screenshot like that technology existed. But, <laughs> you know, it didn't look like that either. Well, so and they had characters, they characters walking around them. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, I did the same thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, they, they had to use real actors. I got to see. They don't move very much. They don't. I didn't see any movement. Nobody blinks. Nobody's no. breathing. You can't see the pulse in the neck, you know, which. Okay. <laughs> maybe I watch these things. Maybe I watch these things way too closely, <laughs> but, you know, I didn't see any movement. <laughs> I didn't see breathing. I didn't see. Yeah, I, I, I was doing the same thing. I'm like, wow, they've got her. Man, that's. Granted, the shots are never very long. True, but True. still, to be yeah, I've seen I've seen other films where you know people are supposed to be standing still and not moving, and you can see them kind of shift from one side to the other, you know that sort of thing. So yeah, that was impressive work by everybody involved. Okay, uh, sounds like he's sewing next door. Um, if you hear construction noise, that's because. They're working on the wax museum next to my place. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, if there's a guy running around in a wheel, running around, if there's a guy wheeling around in a wheelchair, I'm not going in the museum. That's it. The wax museums are creepy enough. I don't need the guy in the wheelchair. There you go. Well, you know, Chris mentioned earlier, this is a double feature. It's on House of Wax, the DVD, which you can get for like 19 bucks right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, you can stream it from Amazon for like 10 bucks. Don't I just don't, buy it on the double. Yeah. <laughs> Two sided DVD. I don't know if it's on the Blu ray that they put out not too long ago with the House of Wax. 
in oh, 3D. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I mean, get it. You, you don't need to see it in blue unless they go in and remaster it, and then I would love to see it in blue, just yeah, to see the but, colors. But I think part of the faded, filtered color gives it its charm. Yeah, and it also probably, you know, once again, you start cleaning things up, you start getting a clearer picture, I guess would be the word. You start seeing the flaws. Yeah, you don't want to – too much DNR kind of ruins that experience anyway. You want to have um, – that's digital noise reduction. You want to have you know, a little bit of the grain. You want to be able to see that it was a film at one point. You don't want to go yeah. too slick. But, you know, on the other hand, it, it really does hold up by itself. I think it's a fascinating – it's not just a novelty because of the color. It, it really lends itself to the type of story it is, and I love it, and I highly recommend it. And Chris – I'm so glad you mentioned this when we were talking on Facebook. It's like, man, this would be great. Let's talk about it. Glad I mentioned it because it's like, you know, that's such a good movie. That is such a good movie. It really is. Um, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's, you know, I mean, even if you've seen House of Wax, you're still going to have fun watching this one. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even though the beginning is beat for beat, and there's a few shots that are identical, like the shot in House of Wax where you see Charles Bronson's head behind yeah. the shelf and all that. And I mean, that's in here too, but still, it's, it's its own piece, if nothing else. You've got Glenda Farrell, and she oh, yeah. carries the film, and I cannot wait to track down these Torchy Blaine. Is that what it was, Torchy Blaine? Yeah, I think they're on, they're on uh, Warner Made for Order, you know, whatever okay. that is. Okay. Um, you know, so um, I think, if I remember right, they have the, um, well, I don't know if it's still available, but they released all nine films Okay. in one set. Well, sounds like uh, I've got something to put on my Christmas wish list. Yeah. Here and, we and go. I'm, and I imagine these were all second features, so I imagine they're pretty short, probably about an hour, hour, ten minutes or something. Right on. But still, hey, Glenda Farrell. There you go. Mm-hmm. So it's October. It is the busiest. It's the most wonderful time of year. Oh, okay, it is. Let's say that. But it's also the busiest time of year for people like you and me mm-hmm. uh, and, and probably the listeners as well. And you have got double duty because you are constantly updating your website, The Shadow Over Portland. Oh, yeah. In fact, um, before I head for Phantasm, I'm going to be working on that. So shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. Chris is constantly updating this website. And, you know, it's called Shadow Over Portland. But if you're in the Pacific Northwest, there's material here for you as well, which is great for people who are not in Portland but still in this area and bad mm-hmm. for me because I get so excited. It's like, oh, this movie's showing. The- oh, it's in Seattle. I, yeah, mm. I know. But that's okay. That's all right. You know, Seattleites, check out this website too. It's really yeah. good. I've got events happening all the way up into uh, Vancouver and, uh, you know, Vancouver, BC and mm-hmm. Victoria. Yep. You know. And if you are in the Pacific Northwest and you have a horror or Halloween or whatever event, not just during October, but any time of year, get a hold of Chris because he'll post it on his website. There's no charge for any of this. No, I never charge. He's just, you know, got a love for this and he wants to share that love with you guys and gals and he does a great job. Well, thank you. Again, that's shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. There is a link on our website over at monsterkidradio.net. It is one of the PERMA links. It's, it's right there in the link section, uh, so you, you can't miss it. And I can't miss Chris because by the time we're done recording here, I'm going to see you again in what? Probably another six and a half hours? Something like that. Yeah, pretty soon. <laughs> we're going to go check out Phantasm, the remastered version. Cannot wait to say it. Approved by Don Coscarelli, remastered and all that by J.J. Abrams. I understand there's a little bit of a Q&A with them that's been recorded on this as well. Can't wait to see it. Mm-hmm. And I'll go ahead and say this now. I have talked to Scott Morris, and he and I will be talking about Phantasm on the show proper at some point. I know it's outside of the wheelhouse, 
But, you know, it's Phantasm. He and I uh, did the first four Phantasm movies on my old podcast. It would be a shame not to do the fifth with him. Oh, yeah, definitely. It'll be fun. That'll be a lot of fun. It'll be fun to see you again later on tonight and at the Lovecraft Film Festival and, well, for whatever else we've got coming up. I'm sure we'll be seeing each other a lot over at the Hollywood. Yeah, and we'll have you back on the show, too. Oh, great. Glad I have you here. That'd be wonderful. Thank you for having me again. I always have a great time. Thanks a lot, Chris. Did we say it enough? Shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. Check out what Chris is doing. The man is doing Godzilla's work. Uh, Go check it out and uh, see what's going on in your neck of the woods. If your neck of the woods happens to be anywhere in the northwest of, well, this continent, really, because like he said, he covers things up in Canada as well. Chris will be back on the show actually probably next week. Talk about that here in a moment. London from end to end. Even Scotland Yard is baffled. But two men of intrepid daring fight back. It's Abbott and Costello at their hilarious best. Battling fiction's most fearsome themes in Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Co-starring Boris Karloff as Robert Louis Stevenson's fabulous double demon. Mr. Hyde will kill him. Mr. Hyde will kill him. With Helen Westhart. Craig Stevens and Reginald Denny. Hey, stop this fight! There's ladies present! Bud and Lou are tearing up the town, trapping the beast among a bevy of beauties, adding turmoil to terror in a house of horrors that would frighten even Frankenstein. Come on, will you? We can catch your master. Give me a hand. And what a riot when they get funny notions from deadly potions. Hey, Slim. Wow. Those guys must be seeing things. Pay no attention then, they're drunk. You know, there's always a way of... Piggy! comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. She is Erin Gray. Erin, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Gil was doing great. He was making the big bucks. You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum. Lex Luthor from Smallville. Make sure you listen to this guy's show. Sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. 
Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book... Comic Book... Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. Hey, Derek, this is Richard the Monster Movie Kid from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. You put the call out, you wanted to hear what we're doing for Halloween. Well, so what's Rich the Monster Movie Kid doing? Well, of course, over at my blog, I'm doing what I do every year, and I'm reviewing films in the greatest month of the year. Now, for the last four years, I've done the 31 Days of Halloween. When I launched the blog in 2012, I did a movie a day for the entire month. And for the last two years, I dedicated the entire month to the films of Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. I knew this year I wasn't going to be able to pull that off. I've got a lot of stuff going on personally, and I'm going to be on vacation at the end of the month. So I've stirred things up a little bit, and I'm doing... Horror Fest 2016. I'm still covering films. I'm going to do about 10 or 11 of them, and they're going to be films from the 30s. Some of the other classic horror films that don't happen to be from Universal and don't happen to star Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi. There does happen to be a lot of Lionel Atwell. We're going to be doing films like Dr. X, Mystery of the Wax Museum, Murders in the Zoo, and some lesser talked about films like Supernatural with Carol Lombard or The Devil Doll with Lionel Barrymore. So I'm going to have some fun with it. I'm going to be talking about old-time radio shows. I'm going to be doing The Friends of Monster Movie Kid. And over at Dread Media, yep, the Dread Media podcast, I'm going to be doing five consecutive weeks of film reviews doing everything from Hammer Films to the latest from Christopher R. Mim to Stephen King to a horror anthology. I'm definitely going to be keeping busy over at Monster Movie Kid. But at the end of the month, I'm taking a week's vacation. I'm heading up to the Northeast, and I'm going to visit some friends in Maine. But get this, the Saturday before Halloween, we're going to be going on down to Salem, Massachusetts. So yes, I will be in Salem on this Saturday before Halloween, and I'm looking forward to it. On Halloween day proper, I'm going to be flying back home, and that night I'm going to be resting and recuperating after my vacation by watching all of the Universal Monster Classics I watch every single year. Frankenstein, Brighter Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy, whatever I can cram in that night and possibly on into the wee hours of the morning, because I don't happen to work the next day, I'm going to be Wrapping Halloween season up. So that's what Richard the Monster Movie Kid is doing. Check out my blog, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Of course, Friends of Monster Movie Kid includes you, Derek, and everyone at Monster Kid Radio. Happy Halloween, everyone. There's a link to the Monster Movie Kid over on our website at monsterkidradio.net. Rich, thanks for sending in that contribution to let us know what's going on for Halloween your website, you know, listeners, if you haven't read the Monster Movie Kid website, you're missing out. And that Rich contributes regularly to the Dread Media podcast. Well, Desmond Reddick and friends already had an awesome podcast, but now that Rich is contributing to it, it's like icing on the cake. You hear that, Rich? You're icing. I don't know what flavor, though. Rich, if you were a flavor of icing, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, uh, yeah, I would love to say that he and I got together and planned to do this whole Mystery of the Wax Museum coverage at the same time, but, you know, it's just a happy accident, a coincidence. If you are interested in his thoughts on Mystery of the Wax Museum, 
check out the October 11th entry of monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. And, you know, Rich and I are planning on doing a show together here soon. It's just that things are kind of going crazy with the month of October and blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. He and I are going to be talking about Carnival of the Souls in the near future, I promise. Hi, Derek. This is Alan Trump in St. Louis. You had mentioned that you uh, might like to have people call in and say what they're doing to celebrate Halloween around their parts of the country. Here's what I've been doing lately. I uh, went to a triple feature at the local Skyview Drive-In Theater in Belleville, Illinois this last weekend. Saw The Exorcist, Poltergeist, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They had a Misfits cover band there called We Bite. I hadn't been to the drive-in for about 20 years, so it was a wonderful, nostalgic experience. Uh, all the kids there dressed up in their Halloween costumes, so it was great. Also had the chance at Webster University on Sunday to see a double feature of Brazilian horror movies by Coffin Joe, or if you want to call him Jose Mojica Marins, or uh, Zedo Cacho. They uh, they showed This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse and Embodiment of Evil, and they had a special guest, Raymond Castile, who played a young Coffin Joe in Embodiment of Evil, assisted by his beautiful vampire, Lady Minion. So that was pretty cool. Also, like to put together... Uh, I belong to a little film group. Most of the time, I must confess, they're more conventional than horror. Uh, they're perfectly happy watching a Wes Anderson film or a film noir from the, from the 1940s, but every Halloween, they let me pick the selections to show. I've got one guy who's really pushing for targets with Boris Karloff, and that would be great, but I really have the feeling I want to show the old TV show from uh, Route 66, the Lizard Leg and Owlet's Wings, it has Karloff, Cheney Jr., and Laurie. Um, maybe toss in a Night Gallery episode, which might be a lot of fun. So that could be good. I also tried to put together, just for my own little soundtrack for every year around Halloween, put together an own little playlist or CD of Halloween songs that may have been overlooked. I, I know there's tons of rockabilly punk and metal bands out there that are doing Halloween stuff now, but I like to try to find songs that are older that you know, even more conventional artists might have done. Uh, I look, talk, I listen to things from friends. Look at iTunes. Lots of good podcasts of Halloween uh, of music. I look at those. So I picked up like, for instance, uh, from your 1951 Down Place. I found that song "Dracula Has Risen from the Grave" by the Coffin Shakers. A uh, lady in my office mentioned uh, Lee Oster of the band War has a wonderful song called "You Remind Me of a Haunted House I Was In." Another person mentioned the Strawberry Alarm Clock, who were famous for Incense and Peppermints, does a great song called Curse of the Witches. And the prog rock band Atomic Rooster does this really eerie little song called Death Walks Behind You. So I'll put that together and uh, play that in the car as I had travel around going to these different events. Just wanted to mention also just conventional stuff for conventional stuff for Halloween. My wife has a house decorated in spiders and there's a big sign out the front door that says enter at your own risk. I'll probably wind up carving a jack-o'-lantern. I'll perform the uh, bi-monthly activity of cleaning dog poop out of the yard to make sure that the 30 or 40 trick-or-treaters that we generally get will show up and be and uh, have a have a nice evening. I'm going to be watching for as many of the Ken Bone, a local boy who is the star of the second uh, 
Clinton-Trump debate in his red sweater, see how many people show up as that, and I'll have to decide. Generally, I try to give one a handful of candy to everybody who shows up. I know a lot of people stick with one or two pieces, but I generally try to go with a whole handful. So, hey, wrap this up. Best wishes to yourself and your wife and to the rest of the Monster Kid Radio family. God bless, and I'm out of here. Alan is somebody else I've been talking with about getting him back on the show. He and I are going to talk about, you know, I'll spoil it. We're going to talk about the Astro Zombies, which just came out on Blu-ray. So Alan and I will be doing that in the near future, I hope. Anyway, Coffin Joe movies. I have to say, this is an area that I know nothing about other than there's a series of movies called the Coffin Joe series. I, I mean, I know who Coffin Joe is. I know he's important. But in terms of the films themselves, I've not seen a one. Uh, cut off a corner of my horror fan. I don't know. But uh, if I were to start with the Coffin Joe movies, where would I start? Listeners, let me know. Where would I start? Targets is a phenomenal film. I love that film. I know Sarah Karloff loves that film. I know a lot of people love that film. It's really, really good. I don't view it as a Halloween movie, though. I mean, that's just me. I'd still watch it. I mean, anything with Karloff is solid. That episode of Route 66, again, I've not seen any Route 66. And I think what I'm going to end up doing is watching that on Halloween Day. Traditionally, at least within the past five, six, seven years, I take Halloween Day off from work, or at least a day around Halloween if it's on a weekend. I used to go into work at the day job on Halloween back when they used to do a costume contest, but honestly, when they stopped doing the costume contest, I stopped going, and it's because I was always winning. And I don't, not that they stopped doing it because I was always winning, but, you know, winning the costume contest was fun for me. I, I don't work on Halloween. Um, and I'm going to be staying home this year as well. It's on a Monday. Uh, so I'm going to get a three day weekend and I'm just going to sit around and watch monster movies all day. I'll have a bowl of Frankenberry or Booberry and yeah, I'm just going to kick back with some Blu-rays, my Roku box, my DVDs. I don't know if I have really a theme picked out yet. I know Rich earlier mentioned he does the universal monster movies. I'm not sure which way I'm going to go, although I should check out that Route 66 episode. It sounds like something I should see, or at least I should have seen by now, right? I appreciate Rich and Alan calling in their Halloween plans. I'd love to hear more about what you guys and gals are doing. So again, our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. It's 503-479-5MKR. Beware the Astro Zombies. They mutilate, they torture, they kill. Spine-tingling horror, unspeakable shock, and breathless excitement will grip you as you watch living organs ripped from the bodies of voluptuous females as beating hearts and throbbing brains are transplanted to create the Astro Zombies. Cringe in terror, scream in fright as these skull-faced monsters strike blindly at living flesh and the motion picture screen flows in the blood-drenched wake of the Astro Zombies. The beautiful, voluptuous, deadly, vicious Satana, a woman who would stop at nothing to gain control over the Astro Zombies, whose creed was kill, kill, kill. John Carradine as the deranged scientist, Wendell Corey as the doctor who opposes him, match wits in this bloody, sadistic, terror-filled, suspense-laden horror film of brutal mutilations and senseless killings as the Astro Zombies go berserk and threaten a city with death. Watch it and you die a thousand deaths. The Astro Zombies in color, coming soon to your local theater. Hey, you want to die, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen. 
races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture-making, Carnival of Souls. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, that voicemail number that I've mentioned a couple of times, you can find it on our website at monsterkidradio.net. You can also find our email address over there. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. This is how you can send feedback to us. If you have thoughts about this episode or any of the previous 288, wow, 288. If you have thoughts about any of those, feel free to call it in or write it in, and we'll talk about it here on the show. Also on our website, you're going to find links to our Facebook group and our Facebook page. You're going to find a link to every single song that's appeared here on the show in the past. Every song that appears on Monster Kid Radio appears with the permission of the band. I'm very proud of that. So please consider supporting the bands that help support Monster Kid Radio. I'd also like to thank all of you who have supported Monster Kid Radio through Patreon. We have a number of patrons through our Patreon campaign, which you can find at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. And you know, I haven't done this in a little while. I'm probably a little behind. Let's do a Monster Kid Radio executive producer roll call. This is everybody who's supported Monster Kid Radio within the past month or so at the Toho level or higher. Special thanks to executive producers Mitch Gonzalez, George McGowan, Thomas Broussard, Tracy and Scott Morris, Joseph Perry, Jeremy from SOJ Designs, Jeffrey Owens, Stephen Turner, Frank Schildener, Sean Hode, Richard Chamberlain, John Kilgallen, and the folks at Dorado Films. We also have the small matter of a contest we've been running here on Monster Kid Radio. From Parts Unknown released the book Rencore, Life in Grudge City by Matt Wallace from the story by Keith J. Rainville and Matt Wallace. We've got a paperback of the book right here that we're going to give away right now. 
This is how we took entries. We asked listeners to send in what their name would be if they were a luchador. I got a number of entries, and we're just going to go through the list here. Randomly pulling it out of a hat. The winner is David H., whose luchador name would be Ultimo Diablo. David, I'll be in touch so I can get your mailing address so I can send you a copy of the book. Speaking of sending things out in the mail, I'm behind on a number of things. So listeners who are expecting things in the mail, you know who you are. It will be happening here in the very near future. And I think that's it. I think we're done. We're at the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Next week, it's HP Lovecraft Film Festival time, boys and girls. This is one of the events of October for me. I love the HPLF. F, I love being able to be involved as a panelist, introducing movies, that sort of thing. I did introduce a movie. I was on a panel, and you're going to hear all about it next week on Monster Kid Radio. Chris McMillan was there as well. He was on the panel I was on, and he and I kind of rap about the festival as well. So come back for that seven days for more Monster Kid Radio. Between now and then, remember that all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Wave Rock. That belongs to the band The Surf Mist out of Perth, Australia. The album is called Swingin' Sisters. You can find them at thesurfmist.bandcamp.com or on Facebook, or just follow the link over at monsterkidradio.net. Big thanks to them for allowing us to play their music here on the show. Big thanks to you for listening to the show. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.